Hi, listeners, and welcome to another episode of No Priors. This week, we're talking to Beiyang Liu, the co-founder and CTO of Sourcegraph, which builds tools that helps developers innovate faster. Their most recent launch was an AI coding assistant called Cody. We're excited to have Beiyang on to talk about how AI changes software development. Welcome. Cool. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you guys founded Sourcegraph all the way back in 2013, right? I feel like I met you and Quinn at GopherCon either that year or the year after. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. We met at one of those like after conference uh, events. And I remember you asked me a bunch of questions about developer productivity and, and code search and what we we're doing back then. Many listeners to the podcast are technical, but can you describe the core thesis of the company? Quinn and I are both developers by background. We felt that there was kind of like this gap between the promise of programming, being in flow and getting stuff done and creating something uh, new that everyone experiences. It's probably the reason that many of us got into programming in the first place, the joy of creation. Then you compare that with uh, the day-to-day of most professional software engineers, which is uh, a lot of toil and a lot of drudgery. When we kind of drilled into that, you know, why is that? I think we both realized that we're spending a lot of our time in the process of reading and understanding the existing code uh, rather than uh, building new features because all that is uh, prerequisite for being able to build uh, quickly and efficiently. And that was a pain point that we saw again and again, both with the people that we collaborated with uh, inside uh, the company we were working at at the time, Palantir, as well as a lot of the enterprise customers that Palantir was working with. So we were kind of drop shipping into large banks and Fortune 500 companies and building software kind of embedded with their software teams. And if anything, the the pain points they had around understanding legacy code uh, and figuring out the context uh, of the code base so they could work uh, effectively was, you know, 10x, 100x of, of the challenges that we were experiencing. So it was partially, you know, scratching our own itch and partially like, hey, like the pain we feel is reflected across all these different industries trying to build software. Yeah, and we're going to come back to context and how important it is for um, using this generation of AI. But I want to go actually back to like some roots you have in in thinking about AI and your interning at um, the Stanford AI Research Lab way back when. Yeah, uh, like that wasn't the starting point for Sourcegraph. It was more like, oh, we need like super grep, right? Like we just need a, a version of search that works in real environments and is is useful for getting to flow. When yeah. when in the story of Sourcegraph did you start thinking about how advancements in AI could could change the product? My first love in terms of computer science was was actually AI and, and machine learning. That's what I uh, concentrated in uh, when I was a student at Stanford. Uh, I worked in the Stanford AI lab uh, with Daphne Kohler. She's my advisor, uh, mostly doing computer vision stuff in those days. And uh, it was very different in those days. We're now living through the neural net revolution. You know, we're well into it. Uh, it's just like neural nets uh, everywhere. And in those days, it's still kind of like the dark ages of neural nets, where it was after the first initial uh, successes they had in like the late 80s and 90s, doing OCR with them. Um, but then after that, the use cases sort of petered out. And by the time that I was doing it, uh, the conventional wisdom the thing that they told us in you know machine learning one one was like you know neural nets were this thing that we tried you know a decade or so ago but it didn't really pan out so these days we're we're mostly focused on uh, graphical models and statistical uh, learning techniques you know really trying to be explicit about modeling the probability distribution of what we're trying to represent 
We actually had Daphne and one of her other former students, Lucas Bewald from Now Weights and Biases, on the podcast as well. And both of them were also, like, lamenting the dark ages when, like, neural nets <laughs> were, like, this weird niche thing. And we're going to work on graphical models instead. Um, but it's very cool to see so many people who have, like, a, you know, interest and technical passion in this, like, emerge the other end and be like, aha, like, now is the time. So um, at what point were you like, okay, like, I'm, I'm going to look at this and uh, we're going to try to work on it at source graph. Yeah, it's great. It, it really feels like a homecoming of sorts. And I think it, we're, we're very fortunate that a lot of the underlying skill sets, I think, do transfer pretty well. I mean, it's, it's all linear algebra and, and matrix operations uh, underneath the hood. And that stuff is still applicable. And a lot of the intuitions, like the value of sparsity and, and things like that, uh, still are, are kind of applicable. I'm still waiting for the statistical learning and, and maybe some of the convex optimization stuff to, to reemerge. I wouldn't count it entirely out yet. I feel like the pendulum always swings back the other way. It's um, it swung away from statistical learning uh, and convex optimization and, and models now. Um, but I think they'll reemerge, especially as we try to get deeper into interpreting uh, how and why uh, neural nets and uh, attention is as good as it is. But to answer your question, you know, when did we start thinking about this at uh, SourceGraph? I, I want to say it was like circa 2017, 2018 that we started to kind of like revisit some of this because um, I, mean, I think 2017 was when the attention paper came out and you started to see more applications of LLMs in uh, the space of code. I think tab nine was one of the earliest yep. uh, to market there with the LLM-based uh, autocomplete. I remember chatting with someone who had essentially implemented that on top of GPT-2 uh, at the time. And it wasn't nearly as good as it is uh, now, even then, you know, like two or three years ago. But we ran some early experiments uh, applying LLMs, specifically uh, embeddings, uh, to code search. And that yielded some interesting results. Again, the quality wasn't at the point where we were ready to productionize it yet, but it was certainly like enough to keep us going. I think things really picked up September or October of last year. It was a confluence of factors. I think, uh, one, our internal efforts just kind of uh, reached a level of maturity where we started being more serious, uh, devoting more time to it. Second thing is I went on a paternity leave, so I was able to step away from kind of like the day-to-day -day stuff a little bit, and that gave some time and room uh, for, for kind of experimentation. And then, of course, at the end of November, uh, ChatGPT landed, and that just uh, changed the game for everyone, and there was a ton of interest and in, in excitement that really uh, gave us a, a big kick to, to start exploring in depth uh, the, the efforts that we already had underway. Awesome. And so explain what Cody is today. Cody is an AI coding assistant. It integrates into your editor, uh, whether you're using VS Code or JetBrains. We also have experimental support for NeoVim. And as an Emacs user, uh, uh, Emacs is, is on the way. We've also integrated it into our web application. So if you go to sourcegraph.com and go to a repository page, uh, there's an Ask Cody button that allows you to ask uh, high-level questions about that code base. And in terms of feature set, it supports a lot of the features uh, that other coding assistants support, um, inline completions, uh, high-level Q&A uh, informed by the context of your code base, kind of specific commands like generate unit test or uh, fix this compiler error uh, that are kind of like inline actions in the editor. And our main point of differentiation is across that feature surface area, we augment the uh, large language model that we're using underneath the hood with all the contexts that we can pull in through SourceGraph and through techniques that we've refined over the past decade, building you know, a really awesome code understanding tool for 
human developers. Okay, so you have said, um, and I think it is like a, a more interesting point of view now that there is an argument that choosing and structuring like large repo context is the key unlock for code generation and like AI code functionally. Can you explain how you guys approach it? Yeah, so in in many ways, the context problem. So you know, uh, context. Another another word for it is retrieval augmented generation. The, the basic idea. I mean, listeners of your pod are probably familiar with this, but just just for the ones that are you know tuning in and yeah. and unfamiliar, uh, the idea is that large language models get a lot smarter uh, when they're augmented with some sort of context fetching ability. Uh, the most common of which is typically like a search engine. So there's a number of examples out there of, of uh, doing this. Bing Chat is one example. Perplexity is another example. They're building Google competitors where they integrate the large language model with uh, a web search functionality. And fetching search results into the context window of the language model helps basically anchor it to uh, specific facts and, and knowledge that helps it hallucinate less and generate more accurate responses. We essentially do the same thing uh, for code using a combination of code search and also something we call graph context to pull in relevant code snippets and pieces of documentation into the context window uh, in a way that improves code generation and high-level Q&A about the code. And so on the code search end, we're, we're essentially incorporating the technologies that we built uh, to help human developers over the past decade. So if you look at the core feature set of SourceGraph, the bread butter really is uh, you have code search, which allows you to go from, you know, I'm thinking of a function or I'm thinking of an error message and quickly pinpointing the needle in the haystack uh, in a giant, giant universe of code. And then from there, it's sort of this walking the reference graph of code. So go to definition, find references, uh, in a way that doesn't require you to, you know, set a development environment or, you know, tangle with any build systems. It just all kind of works. Um, so the analogy there is like, we, we want to make exploring and searching code as easy as it is to explore and search the web. That's a huge unlock for humans being able to take advantage of the institutional knowledge embedded in that data source. And it turns out those same actions, the code search and then the walking the reference graph, uh, turns out to be really useful for surfacing relevant pieces of context that you can then place into a language model's context window that makes it much better at generating code that fits within the context of your code base and also answering questions accurately without making as much stuff up. Actually, I'm very interested. Do you do both, let's say, other traditional information retrieval approaches like ranking along with AST transversal? Yeah. Or like, is there is there information missing from the graph context that's also useful either for your humans using search or for the models using search? Yeah, there's a ton of data sources. Let's start with the search side, which the search problem is really like, hey, the user asked a question. Now find me all the, the pieces of, of code or pieces of documentation that could be relevant to answering that question. We really view that as a generalized search problem. Um, it has a lot of like parallels to end user search uh, with the difference being, you know, for human search, it's really important to get the, the quote unquote right result in the top three. Otherwise people will ignore it. Whereas with uh, language models, you actually have a little bit more flexibility because, you know, you have a context window of these days, at least, you know, 2000 tokens, some cases much longer, right? And then in terms of how you do that fetching, um, the, the overall architecture is very similar to how you would design a search engine. So you have a, a two-layered architecture. At the, the bottom layer are your kind of like underlying retrievers. Um, so the base case here would be just keyword search. Um, or, you know, the fancy way of saying that nowadays is uh, sparse vector uh, search. Uh, 
if you use the kind of like one hot encoding where ones correspond to the presence of certain dictionary words. Um, anyways, that's just keyword search. It actually works reasonably well. I think if you talk to a lot of uh, RAG practitioners, uh, you'll find that the kind of like dirty secret is that keyword search can probably get you uh, more than 90% of the way there. Let's talk about embeddings in a little bit, but on, on keyword search alone, there's, there's a lot that we do. Um, it's a combination of uh, classic keyword search, combining that with uh, things that work well for code, like regular expressions and string literals. Um, also really important is how you index the data. Uh, so what you're treating as quote unquote, like the document in your keyword search backend. Um, we found it that it, it's, it's, it's absolutely essential if you're searching over code to uh, parse things. Um, and so you can extract ex specific functions and methods and classes uh, along with the corresponding doc string and treat those as separate entities in your system rather than indexing at the file level or trying to do some more naive chunking. So there's the keyword search. We also have uh, embeddings-based search or dense vector uh, search where you basically run those same documents, those functions and symbols and, and code uh, through an LM, uh, take out the uh, kind of internal representation, the embeddings vector, and then do nearest neighbor search against that. There's a, a couple other techniques that can use to, to surface you know, relevant context too, like matching file names and things like that. Anyways, you have this basket of underlying kind of retrievers. And the goal of the retrievers is just to get uh, preserve 100% recall. So make sure you don't miss anything, but also get the candidate result set down to a size where you can use a fancier method to bump the, the, the really relevant stuff uh, up in the context window. And that's where the second layer of the architecture comes into play. And the second layer is the re-ranking layer. Again, if you're implementing a search engine, this is how you do it, right? Like you have, after your, your layer ones propose like all the candidates up, you have a fancier, you know, re-ranking layer that would be too slow to invoke across the entire document corpus. But once you've kind of scoped it down to a smaller set, you can take the re-ranker and uh, the, the, the purpose of the re-ranker is really to bump uh, the right result or the most relevant results up to the top. So um, optimizing for precision uh, over recall. So that's kind of like the general architecture of, of the, the search backend that powers Cody. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that... Um... I believe and we believe at Conviction is that people are going to build pipelines that look like search pipelines attached to a large language model in many more domains. Yep. And like you should treat that entire like you guys are building a very sophisticated version here having worked on search for a while. But uh, that parts beyond the language model itself are quite important. For example, like the embeddings model and your chunking strategy. And they're actually pretty data specific. Yep. Right. We were just talking about this, and I think people are going to end up with um, domain-specific and even fine-tuned embeddings models from companies like Voyage or in-house because there's a, I think there's a lot of headroom on performance there. Yep, absolutely. I think the, the Voyage folks are doing really interesting stuff uh, working on an embeddings model for code. We're kind of collaborating with them uh, at the moment. Uh, they're a really smart set of folks. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's so many uh, components uh, in these AI systems that are outside of the quote-unquote main language model that are really important. And we found that the, the most important things are, I mean, really what this comes down to is like a, a data quality and data processing pipeline, which has been something that people have realized for a long time, right? Like uh, your model architecture can only go so far if your data is, is garbage, 
so you really need a high quality data pipeline. And that means not only having, you know, in our domain, high quality code that can serve as the underlying data to use, but also a way to structure that data uh, in a way where you can maximize your ability to extract signal from noise. Do you take into account the quality of code in this pipeline in, in some way? Because, you know, you're working on customer code bases, like, if there are anything like the code bases I've interacted with, like there's, you know, there's a variance of quality, but that's the real world. So like, what do you mean by, you know, high quality code here? I mean, we kind of implicitly do right now because we uh, built into Cody is, is this notion of like, you know, which code is it referencing? It's going to reference the code in your code base uh, first. And that's probably the, the most relevant code if you're trying to work on day-to-day tasks in a private code base. We're probably going to release a feature soon. This is something that our customers have requested um, basically the ability to point Cody at areas of the code base that are better models of what good uh, looks like. We've, we've talked with a lot of enterprise customers where when we say like, hey, you know, Cody has the context of your code base, it will go and do a bunch of code searches when it's generating code for you. Uh, their initial reaction is like, uh, can I tell it to ignore uh, <laughs> a large parts of the code? Because there's certain parts of the code where like, yeah, those are anti-patterns. We're trying to like deprecate that or migrate away from that pattern. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. That's actually like a, a very easy thing to do at the the, the search layer. And, and the nice part of, of this too is um, when you're doing RAG, you can you can be very explicit about the, the type of information, the type of data you're fetching into the context window. You basically like can give someone like a lever that they could turn on or off or like a slider at query time that kind of controls what you tag in uh, as context. So, you know, maybe sometimes you really do want the full code base as context when you're doing something like a completions or you're just trying to, you know, get something out the door. Other times, maybe you want to be a little bit more thoughtful about what context you're attending to because uh, you have a, uh, uh, another goal in mind. You know, not only do you want to ship the feature, uh, but you also want to up-level the quality of your code or make it look more like some golden copy you have somewhere in your code base. You just mentioned completions, and then there's the other uh, sort of user experience model that we've seen, which is chat in terms of how people interact with code generation capabilities. Yep. Um, where do we go from here, right? Is it like, is it agents? Is it more reliability? Like, what do you what do you want to build Cody into? Yeah, so I think there's kind of like the short term, the long term to think about. In the short term, I think there's a ton more surface area in the developer inner loop um, and kind of like human in the loop use cases. Uh, we Sorry, describe what you mean by inner loop. When you think about the software development life cycle, this kind of iterative cycle, uh, through which we build software, there's kind of like an inner loop and the outer loop. The outer loop is kind of like the entire ring of like, you plan for a feature, you decide what you want to build, you go and actually implement the feature, you write the tests, you submit it to CI, you submit to code review, uh, and then provided you pass all that, then it's time to deploy it into production. Once it's in production, you got to observe and monitor it and react to any uh, issues that happen along the way. So that's kind of like the, the outer loop that sort of happens at the team level or maybe the organizational level. The inner loop is the kind of uh, cycle that uh, a single developer iterates on uh, potentially multiple times per day. And it, this is really the engine of, of how you iterate to something that is like a working patch that actually delivers the feature. So in one invocation of the outer loop, there's many inner loops that you go through because as a developer, unless you're like, you know, a superstar genius who's already written this feature before, 
the first attempt at uh, implementing new feature, you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. You're going to kind of like figure stuff out along the way. Uh, you're going to acquire more context and realize, oh, there's this other thing that exists uh, that I should be using. And so it's that kind of like learning process that you want to accelerate as much as possible. And so if you look at the landscape of code AI today, the, the, the systems that are actually in production and in use, uh, they're all interloop tools. So anything that is you know, in your editor doing inline completions or chat, that's, that's kind of assisting you in the process of of writing the code and assisting you in, in kind of accelerating your, your interloop as a, a developer. And there's just a ton of opportunity there. And we think of it mainly in terms of, uh, you know, beyond chat and completion, there's these specific use cases that represent forms of toil uh, or are just, you know, a little bit tedious or repetitive or just non-creative that we can help uh, accelerate. And so we've broken those out into distinct use cases that map to commands in Cody. So there's a command to generate a unit test informed by the context of your code base. There's a command to generate doc strings. There's a command uh, to explain the code, again, pulling in context through the graph uh, and, and through using uh, code search um, that we think can be targeted. Basically, these are like laser beams that allow us to focus on key pain points in the developer in a loop, things that like disrupt you, slow you down, and maybe take you out of flow. Ton of stuff there, that's all near term. In the longer term, I think the, the vision that we and a lot of folks are working toward is, hey, can we get to the point where the system can write the feature itself, the code writes itself, so to speak. And an AI the, engineer, yeah. An AI engineer, exactly. The kind of interface for that, the way we describe it is, you know, you, can you take a, an issue description, um, it's either a bug report or the description of a new feature that you want to add, and can your system generate a pull request or a, a change set uh, that implements uh, the spec that you provide without uh, human intervention or human supervision uh, in the actual process of writing the code. Um, and so in the long term, we are working towards that. I think we're still a little bit uh, a ways from uh, getting there. There will be kind of like a range of issues that can be supported in terms of complexity, right? Like there's certain like bugs and issues that you know, in whole are kind of a form of toil. Like no one wants to do them because it's kind of like busy work, even though uh, it's it might be really important busy work, you know, like keeping your dependencies up to date and things like that. Those are probably the things that we'll tackle first, be able to completely automate first, and then we'll slowly work our way up towards more sophisticated uh, features. Migrating database schema. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's probably maybe like a, a two by two you want to draw here between like how tedious is it and how high stakes is it? And, uh, you know, we'll slowly try to migrate up into the, the, the upper right quadrant. You don't trust my AI to do that yet? <laughs> Actually, I, I, I do want to talk about the constraints because, like, I've been thinking a bunch about this, too. And, um, like, one, if you take inspiration from the iterative process of real humans writing code, and I'm like, okay, like, you know, there's there's pseudocode in my head and I'm going to test something and then I got to, like, remember how something works. Yeah. There's now one within a small community of people working on this, like um, increasingly interesting vein of thought, which is like, okay, we're going to invest more in, sometimes people call it system two thinking mm -hmm. or, you know, variations of test time search, like generate more samples. And because it is code, do different types of validation, right? Yeah. There's another school that's just like, make the model better, right? Like we don't need yeah, validation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just need more reasoning, right? I don't know if there's others that you think about, but like, are those the right dimensions of constraint? 
like be more right in terms of what we show the end user or just, you know, yeah, have yeah, a yeah. Of, yeah. So, I mean, just to restate what you just said, um, I think that I think that's a, a good way to slice it. Um, like the, the the two examples you mentioned is like, oh, okay, like is the approach uh, just integrate validation methods into the kind of like uh, chain of uh, thought and execution, um, and and maybe we can get by with like small dumb models as long as like there's a, a feedback loop and uh, work or what like, we have today, right? Or what we have today, yeah. Um, and then uh, another school of thought would be like, hey, we, we really need just like much smarter models who, who don't make the same sorts of like stupid mistakes uh, as, as are made today. Um, I think that's an interesting way to slice it. So another way to slice it that um, has been kind of top of mind for me is if your goal is issue to pull request, uh, one way to do it is you could take a model of whatever size and comp basically like decompose that task uh, down into subtasks. So, you know, if you're trying to implement this complex feature, you know, which files do you need to edit? What functions do you add to e each file? And what unit tests do you need to validate that functionality? You can kind of keep decomposing it until you're at the level where, you know, today's language models can solve that. And then you kind of chain them together, uh, right? So that's, that's kind of one way. It's kind of like the break it down and then build it from the bottom up. Um, the other way to do this is just, I mean, you could just say like, the first way is wrong. Like the first way is how humans do it, but you know it's not necessarily the case that the the best way to do it for a machine is the way that humans do it. Another way you could do it is just say like, hey, let's expand the context window of the model so it can attend to you know a large chunk of the existing code base, and then just ask it to generate the diff. And uh, you know if that is reliable enough, um, it will probably be unreliable. But if it's reliable enough such that you know it works one percent of the time. Uh, then you can just roll the dice a uh, hundred times. And it, as long as you have like a validation mechanism, you know, as long as it outputs the unit tests, uh, which you can kind of like quickly review, then you just roll the dice a hundred times and chances are at least one of them will be correct. And that's the one that you go with. Um, and that's, that's kind of the latter approach is, is kind of the approach that papers like, you know, alpha code uh, uh, or systems like alpha code take uh, when they're trying to tackle these like programming competition uh, type problems. So the limiting factor in the first approach, the bottom up approach is uh, what percentage of time does like a single step uh, in, in your, your whole process work? Because you're essentially rolling the dice, you know, N times. And if each, your success rate each time is, you know, like 90%, uh, and then it's, it's basically like, you know, decays to zero the longer your chain of execution is. So the more steps that are required, the, the more, the, the exponentially less likely you're going to get all the way to full success is. And right now, I think like the, the, uh, the fidelity of today's systems far less than 90% for each step. So the, I think this is the issue that everyone building agents in that way is, is encountering is like, you know, how, you have how compounding can we, failure. Yeah. You have compounding failure. And then, I mean, you have a kind of similar issue on the other side of things, which is like, if you're trying to do the alpha code thing, you've gotten that to work decently well for programming language competition style problems, but working like building a new feature within the context of a large code base, if you try to zero shot it, uh, I think the number of times uh, you'd have to roll the dice would be basically cost prohibitive or time prohibitive. For both approaches, I think context quality can play a key role uh, because what we found is for Cody, for example, um, when our context fetching engine works, the quality of code generated by Cody 
uh, it's like night and day. The ability for um, today's LLMs to kind of like pick up on patterns in the existing code, uh, understand what the existing APIs uh, are, are are in use, pick up on like the testing framework they're using. It's like really, really good. Um, and so it raises the kind of like reliability uh, level up from, you know, this is a complete dice roll. We definitely need to keep the human in the loop to the point where you're like, okay, maybe if we improve this context fetching engine just a little bit more, we can get to the point where we can start chaining these like two, three, four step workflows together into something that works. So I guess the short answer to your question, like how do we get to more reliable agents? Uh, for us, the answer relies heavily on context quality and, uh, fetching the right context for the right use cases uh, quickly. Yeah, I guess I have a lot of optimism when if you look at this as just like a, it's just an engineering problem with a pipeline that has a bunch of different inputs, each of which you can improve Mm -hmm. from here. And you're doing trade-offs against improvement in any part of that pipeline. And like that, that could include... um, how we turn that uh, natural language issue into something that a model can plan from or that we decompose, right? To mm-hmm. what the context quality is to solve that, to um, what is the uh, you know efficiency trade-off of like go sample new solutions from the language model versus what is the quality yeah. of your feedback from runtime evaluation? And there's different types of feedback you could get. Yeah. Like I assume that there's like some... For any given level of language model quality, there's like some optimal pipeline. And I think we're like very far from that today. And then all of the dimensions are improving. So yeah. I, I still kind of think the AI engineer is going to come sooner than, rather than later. Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. You see very promising signs, uh, especially when, when the context engine works. And I think you raise an interesting point. I think it, it still is a bit of an open question. I, I think maybe the question comes down to like, you know, this system, uh, this AI engineer, uh, how much of the architecture of that system is going to be captured at the model layer, you know, embedded in the, the parameters of some very large neural network uh, or, or something that looks like a neural network versus how how much of it is going to be is going to be in, uh, I guess, a more traditional uh, uh, software system, uh, kind of like a, a tra- traditional, uh, you know, boxes and arrows uh, architecture. And... Uh, yeah, I, the, my honest question is, I, I'm not exactly sure. Like, it, it's not, it's not like we don't have any model layer stuff uh, going on at all. It's certainly something that we're interested in. Um, but I think our philosophy is, we always want to do the simplest thing, or like what feels like the simplest thing first. Um, I think you know when I was doing machine learning research, this was like a, a principle that I took away because doing the simple thing. It, it establishes a baseline. Like oftentimes you'll find that like the, the, the doing the fancier thing is often sexier. Uh, and it's certainly these days it's like trendier, right? Cause you can kind of claim the mantle like, ah, you know, I made a, I made my own LLM, a Beyond LLM. And it, you know, I trained it on my own data. <laughs> uh, now I'm, I have, you know, AI or uh, ML street cred because I, I did something at the model layer, but the lesson I took away from from my research days was really the importance of establishing a baseline because oftentimes, if you do the fancy thing first, uh, you might have something that looks like a good result because it you know it's going to work uh, to some degree, uh, but then someone else might come along and do a much dumber, uh, simpler thing, cheaper and one that uh, can be improved more iteratively, and it's going to work as well or better than than your solution. There's like many examples of that. Uh, I think there was uh, the most recent example that comes to mind was. Um, 
there was some paper in Nature that was published where some a research group trained a, a very large neural network to do like climate prediction. You know, very important problem predicting the weather. It's very tough, right? Um, and the thought was like, you know, using the power and nat uh, magic of neural networks, we could, we could actually train something to predict the weather. And lo and behold, you know, like it, it generated good predictions and, and it was published in Nature. And then a year later, there was another paper that was published in Nature where um, another research group uh, trained a neural network for this exact same application. Uh, but in this case, the neural network was, was one neuron. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, it was literally just like a single uh, aggregator and, and that uh, 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 performed as well as, as the uh, gigantic uh, neural net. So it basically established a baseline first. And, and that, that was kind of like what informed our initial prioritization of, of RAG over fine tuning. It's not that we don't think that there's value in fine tuning. Uh, or there's value in uh, training at the model layer. It's that you know RAG helps you establish a baseline, and I think you're still going to want to do RAG anyways. Like even if you have fine-tuned models in in the mix, RAG is still sort of this like last mile data or or context, um, and so you want to do that anyways. So why not do that first and establish a baseline that will actually inform where you want to invest in at the the kind of training layer. I absolutely agree with um, that characterization, and I'd say if you um, if you approach RAG first, you'll benefit from improvements at the model layer, internal or external, right? Absolutely. One one question for you before we zoom out from the from some of the technical stuff: Does the offering of small models uh, like the seven or eight by seven B size that are quite capable, I think surprised a lot of people um, yep. uh, from from Mistral. Like do small models that show higher level reasoning change your point of view at all or how you guys approach this? Uh, we're very bullish on small models. So we, we've actually integrated Mistral into Cody. You can use Mistral uh, as one of the models in Cody chat uh, as of uh, last week. And it's just uh, amazing to see the progress uh, on that side. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to like about small models. They're cheaper and faster, and if you can make them uh, approach the quality of the larger models for your specific use case, then you know there's it's a no-brainer uh, to use them. Um, I think we also like them in the context of completions. The primary model that Cody uses for inline completions right now is uh, StarCoder uh, 7 billion. Um, and with the benefit of context, uh, that actually matches uh, the performance of uh, you know larger proprietary models. And we're just scratching the tip uh, of what's possible there with context fetching right now. So I think uh, we're very bullish on uh, pushing pushing that boundary up even further. And again, with a smaller model, inference goes much faster. And it's also much much cheaper, which means we can provide a faster, cheaper uh, product to our users. What's not to like there? Um, I think there is a question uh, with the smaller models, uh, specifically in the context of uh, RAG. Uh, because I think there's been some research that shows that the kind of like in context learning ability of large language models is is a little bit emergent, uh, like it emerges at a certain level of model size or uh, maybe a certain volume of like uh, training uh, data size. Um, and if you fine tune a, a, a medium sized ish model, sometimes it loses the ability to to do effective uh, in context learning because I think the intuition is. It's devoting more more of its parameter space to kind of like memorizing the the training set, so it can do better kind of like uh, rote completion rather than have something that approaches uh, kind of like general reasoning ability. So that's something that we're we're kind of uh, watchful for, and it does mean that in certain use cases, chat for instance, uh, Cody still uses some pretty large models, 
uh, for chat. Um, and and we we have seen uh, better results with models that have more of a kind of like general reasoning ability because they're able to better take advantage of the context that's uh, fetched in. We can't at this time of year not make predictions. So one is just <laughs> you have thought about software development and how to change it for literally a decade now, probably longer since you had to like think about it to start the company. Um, what does it look like five years from now? That is a great question. Where my mind goes is, um, well, I, I guess to answer where software development will go in the next five years, uh, maybe it's it's kind of informative to look how at how it's evolved over the past. There's a seminal work called the Mythical Man Month uh, that was written in the 70s about software development that today, uh, oddly enough, despite all the technological changes, uh, still rings very true. And the, the core thesis of that book is that software development is this strange beast of, of knowledge work uh, that's very difficult to, to measure. The common mistake that people make again and again is to treat it uh, as some sort of like factory style work where, uh, you know, commits or lines of code uh, are kind of commodities. And, and the goal is just to try to like ship as many of those widgets out uh, as possible. Uh, whereas, you know, anyone who's spent, you know, a month inside uh, a software development or working as an actual software uh, creator knows that there's such a high variance in, in terms of the impact that uh, a line of code can make. You know, you have some features that eat up many lines of code that have very little business impact. And uh, there's also kind of like one line changes that uh, can uh, be game changers for, for the product uh, that you're building. And so when I look forward at how software development is going to change, I like to place it in the context of solving a lot of the, the challenges that that book called out in the 70s that still exist uh, today. And I think the, the core problem of, of software development is is one of coordination and visibility. So to develop the volume of software that we need in today's world requires uh, teams of software develop, uh, developers, often large teams, uh, building complex systems, uh, features that span uh, many layers uh, of stack. And a lot of the slowness and a lot of the pain points and a lot of the toil of software development comes from the task of coordinating human labor uh, across all these different pieces among many different people with different areas of specialization and also different incentives uh, at play. And I think the, the real potential of large language models and AI more generally is to bring more cohesion uh, to that process. And I think the, the, the gold standard is to really try to get a team of uh, software developers to operate as if you are of one mind, you know, one really, really insanely intelligent, uh, productive person with kind of a coherence of vision uh, and uh, a unity of, of of goals and a clarity of focus. And so there's a couple ways uh, in which AI can do that. Uh, well, specifically two. One is, you know, working from the bottoms up, making individual developers more productive such that more and more scope of software can be produced by a single human. If a single human brain is producing that software, then of course there will be more of a coherence of vision because it's just you uh, that's uh, building everything. And you can kind of ensure there's a consistency of experience and uh, code quality there. The other way uh, of doing this is giving uh, people responsible for the overall execution of software engineering team, you know, the team lead, 
or uh, an engineering uh, leader, director, uh, visibility into how the code base is changing, um, actually helping you keep up to date with the changes that are happening uh, across the area of code that is your responsibility. I don't know of a single uh, you know, director or VP level uh, uh, of engineering today that reads through the entire git commit log uh, of their code base, uh, because doing so would be just so, literally so tedious and so time consuming that you wouldn't have uh, time for any any other uh, parts of the job that, that are very critical as an engineering leader. But with the benefit of AI, I think now we have a system that can read a lot of the code on your behalf and summarize the key bits and sort of grant engineering leaders uh, at long last the uh, sort of visibility and transparency into how the system as a whole is evolving so they can attend to the parts that need attention uh, and also make visible to all the other people on the team uh, how things are evolving so that everyone has kind of the context of the overall narrative uh, that you're trying to drive when you're kind of shipping day-to-day and making changes to the code base. I'm just going to take this to its logical conclusion, Bayang. So like Brooks's law from this book was <laughs> that adding manpower to a late software project makes it later, right? So I think the future is just me and like, you know, like a Jira linear shortcut interface, a really good spec. And like one sprint later, my <laughs> AI engineer is done because I didn't have to communicate with my team. That's it. Yeah. If your goal is to build software as it exists today, then yes, I think in the future, a single human will be able to build applications that today require uh, large numbers of people to coordinate. On the other side uh, of things, though, I think that the demand for, for software we're nowhere close to uh, reaching the demand for good, high-quality software. And I think human beings have a tendency to take any system or technology that we're given and kind of push it to uh, the limits or stretch it as far as we can. So I think the other thing that's going to happen is that our ambitions as a species for building complex, sophisticated software are going to kind of grow with the capabilities that we have. And so I still think we will have large teams of uh, software developers in the future, they will just, you know, each individual will be responsible for far more feature scope uh, than they are today. And the system as a whole will be more sophisticated and more powerful. Um, But people will still have to coordinate. (laughs) So what do you think will matter in that, like, future in terms of how, like, what software engineers need to know how to do, right? And the little bit of color I'll give you here is we ran this hackathon uh, early in the year for a bunch of talented undergrads who had built like, you know, they're working on startups or built like really good machine learning demos or done interesting research or something. And so there are people who are like, I learned to code around AI tools, which is a wild idea to me. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like you know, I started on cursor. It was my first IDE or whatever. And a point of view that was a little surprising to me, and I think like March of this year was uh, like, oh, we just don't need to learn to code anymore. Right. And I'm like, like, how could you say that? Like, you know, like they don't even teach garbage collection anymore. Like grumpy old man. Um, Like, uh, like, where's the CS fundamentals? Like, what do you think people need to know? Like, what would be valued? So my take on this and, you know, here's the advice I would give to myself or, you know, a a younger sibling or my child, you know, if if they were, uh, you know, at, at that age where they're trying to determine what skills they should invest in. I think coding is still going to be an incredibly valuable skill moving forward. Um, 
I think in the limit, the things that are going to be valuable that are going to differentiate uh, humans operating in collaboration with AI, if you think about like layers through which software de delivers value, you know, at the very top, you have kind of like the product level concerns, the user level concerns, like how do I design the appropriate user experience? How do I make this piece of software meet the business objectives uh, that I'm trying to achieve? And then you have at the very bottom, the very low level, okay, like what data structures, what algorithms, what sort of uh, specific things underneath the hood are happening that are gonna roll up to the, the high level goals that I wanna achieve. And then you have like, a lot of stuff in the middle uh, that is really just mapping the low-level capabilities uh, that you're implementing to the high-level goals that you're trying to achieve. And I think what AI will do is it will compress the middle uh, because in the middle is really just a lot of like abstractions uh, and um, middleware and other things that are today necessary and today you know require a lot of human labor to implement. It's more boilerplate-y, it's more um, uh, tedious, repetitive, uh, non-differentiating, uh, it's more mechanical, but it's all necessary today because you, you, you gotta connect the dots from the high-level goals to, to low-level functionality. But the actual like creative points, the, the real uh, linchpins around which software design turns are really gonna be the, the high-level goals, like what you're trying to achieve. And then the low-level capabilities. My maybe a bit contrarian hot take here is that uh, CS fundamentals, uh, if anything, are going to grow uh, in importance. Um, you know, the stuff you learn in the coding boot camp, maybe that gets you know automated away. But the fundamentals of knowing you know which data structures, uh, what their properties are, how you can compose them creatively into solutions that meet high-level goals, that is kind of like the creative essence of software development. And I think humans will have uh, the ability to spend more time connecting those dots in the future because they'll, they'll just need less time spent on kind of like that middleware uh, piece. So I, I still think CS fundamentals are very important and also domain expertise. So you know, if you're trying to build software in a given domain, really understanding like what moves the needle uh, in that domain is, is gonna be really important. Awesome. Vang, I think we're out of time. It's a great conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really fun. Find us on Twitter at No Priors Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to see our faces. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. That way you get a new episode every week. And sign up for emails or find transcripts for every episode at no-priors.com. <laughs>